work. Why does this actually lead to atheism? Hi all and welcome to episode 53 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, The Right Reason Podcast. I'm Glenn Peoples, your host again, yakking on about theology, philosophy and whatever else I feel like yakking about. And yes, the podcast is still active, just a little bit slower than it used to be. It's 53. It's not old, not old yet, but neither is it young. It's youngish, maybe. I have to be careful now. I don't, I don't know who's listening. I don't want to offend you. Earlier this year, I was in Houston, Texas, and thanks to Joshua Farris, who set it up, I had the pleasure of speaking to a class at Houston Baptist University on a subject on which I wrote uh, for a book coming out in early 2015, a book that Joshua got me involved in, actually. And the talk was about Christology and theological anthropology. That is our theology of human nature. And I've adapted that talk for the podcast. So rather than yak on in the introduction about what it's going to be about, because I'll be telling you that anyway, how about we just get straight into it like this. The name of the talk is The Mortal God, Materialism and Christology. And I start with a line from Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, where he says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design?" Now, theological anthropology is all about a theological view of what human beings are. Christology is the branch of theology all about who and what Jesus is. And the truth is that when we're doing theological anthropology, we're at least partly also doing Christology. Because in the Incarnation, we're saying that the Son of God became a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm not a dualist. I'm doubt, I doubt that I will change my mind on that. I might, but I'm not currently a dualist. I don't believe in, in, in a soul that's an additional entity to the body that survives bodily death. I favor a pretty materialist view of human beings. And once you've adopted that view, you have to take a look around at Christian theology again, just to see if the stance that you've taken has any impact on the other things you believe. I mean, that, that happens any time you adopt a new belief, right? You have to look around and say, okay, what are the implications of this new view that I hold? In particular, I'm going to look again at the old doctrine of the Incarnation to see what it looks like through new eyes. Now, I'm not at all talking about a question of whether or not we can still believe in the Incarnation. We certainly can. I'm just talking about how we should think of it if we change our view about human beings, as I have. Now, this revisitation raises two main questions. So, number one, how does a materialist view of humanity make sense of the problem of Christology in general? And I'll come to that. And in particular, how can this view that I'm proposing accommodate the death of Jesus? Now, some Christian things have told me that the main reason why they cannot seriously entertain giving up mind-body-substance dualism and accepting a materialist view is that they think it would force them to give up something central to the orthodox view of Christology. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga 
expressed, I think, exactly that concern. The question here is, what happened in the Incarnation? And this is Plantinga's answer. He said, As I understand the Scripture and the Creeds, Nicene, Athanasian, the Chalcedonian formulation, this, that is the Incarnation, involves the second person of the Trinity actually becoming human. The Logos became a human being, acquiring the property, the, sorry, the property necessary and sufficient for being human. Prior to the Incarnation, however, the second person of the Trinity was not a material object, but an immaterial being. If, however, as materialists assert, to be a human being is to be a material object, then the second person of the Trinity must have become a material object. If he has remained a human being, furthermore, he is presently a material object. But then an immaterial being became a material object, and this seems to me to be impossible. End quote. Now, in context, and this is probably the most technical part of the talk, Plantinga is dealing with two broad models of the Incarnation. On the one hand, you've got an abstract view, or abstractism, and a on the other hand, you've got a concrete view, or concretism, and he holds the former view. He holds an abstract view. Now, in very brief, the abstract view, that's the view that Alvin Plantinga holds, is the view that the immaterial entity, that is the logos, or word, the Greek word logos means word, that the logos itself became human. That is, the logos acquired the property of being human. And since Plantinga does not believe that human beings are material things, this doesn't require that the Logos be material in the Incarnation. A concrete view, by contrast, holds that the Logos entered a relationship with something that was fully human. Okay, so the Logos took hold of everything that is included in human nature without becoming human, in the same way that it took a body to itself without becoming a body assuming for now that the Logos did not become a physical thing, which I'm not going to be talking about. Okay. Now, note that an abstract view assumes that one can, in principle, be really human without having a body, right? Because notice how Plantinga says that the Logos, on the abstract view, took on the property of human being. But the Logos isn't a body, right? And yet the Logos became human. So if the Logos itself became human, so we're talking about an abstract view, and humans are material things, then I think Plantinga's objection is, is, is correct. The Logos would have become a material object in the Incarnation, and he, he finds that to be a serious problem, as do others. Now, is that a fatal objection to people like me, to Christians who hold the materialist view of, of human beings? And I don't think so at all. And there are at least two ways that the materialist can go to avoid the problem. One thing we can do is simply reject the abstract view of the Incarnation altogether, which is quite easy to do. We can just deny that the Logos became anything, let alone material. Instead, and this is the way that a number of Church Fathers talk about it, the Logos took to itself a human nature, which involved no non-material substances other than the Logos itself. That, that's what the materialist would say, because the human nature doesn't involve a non-material substance. So we could say that. Alternatively, the materialist would need to offer a defense of the view that the Logos became a material human being, 
and they would need to argue that the Logos could have become a physical object. Now, I'm not going to, to do that. I'm going to leave that alone altogether. Uh, Trenton Merricks has done that, and I think he's done a reasonable job. Look him up if you want to see him doing that, but I'm not taking that path. I'm going to do the former. I'm going to defend a concrete view of the Incarnation combined with a materialist view of human nature. I'll unpack that as we go, because it sounds kind of meaningless just to dump those words out there. Um, Also, in order to exonerate materialism as a real option for for an Orthodox Christian, you would have to show that materialism is compatible with the life and work of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, most importantly, his death and resurrection. At the least, I hope to persuade some people that a materialist view of human beings presents no more difficulty than a dualist view does when it comes to the incarnation of God in Christ. So that's what I'm going to try and do. So let's start with the more general problem of Christology. And the first thing I want to say here is that I think some dualists improperly imagine that dualism somehow gives them an edge or makes things easy for them. You see, the difficulty of Christology has always been in maintaining that Jesus is one person while maintaining that he has a complete human nature. He's totally human, I mean completely human, and a complete divine nature. So he's got to have a complete human and divine nature, which avoids the heresy called Apollinarianism. And we've got to maintain that Jesus has these two natures while being just one person, avoiding another view called Nestorianism. Now, formulating a Christology that meets these demands is not uniquely a problem for those with a materialist view of human beings. Remember that the major Christological heresies were conjured up by people who were themselves dualists, right? So there's, there's, it's like a minefield. It's going to be difficult. Now, some people might think that dualism has a clear advantage when trying to explain the Incarnation. William Lane Craig, uh, when answering a question on how he could give an account of the infinite God, uh, actually, I don't think that was the term used, the, the, the vast mind of God becoming incarnated in a, in a human The question was, how can this be done? And he answered, apparently assuming, at least I think he was assuming, that dualism about humans in general would be able to provide a swift solution. Listen to the way he approaches the question. In essence, what the Incarnation says is that the mind, or the soul of of Jesus of Nazareth, was the second person of the Trinity. And therefore, I don't see any more difficulty in having an Incarnation of a divine mind than I do in seeing an incarnation, in our own case, of a human finite mind. You see what he's saying? Since dualism is unproblematic, he says the incarnation of God in Christ, too, is unproblematic, since it is essentially the same thing, a soul or mind, the divine logos, associated with a body. Now, he knows what I'm about to say. He doesn't know that I'm going to say it, but he knows that it's true. He's been raked over the coals for this before, does Bill Craig. But this is a view called Apollinarianism. Apollinarius noted, he was was the guy after whom the view was named, no surprises. Apollinarius noted that if the Logos was added to a human body and soul, namely to a complete human being, he was a dualist, so he thinks that human beings 
uh, bodies and souls, then that's not really an incarnation because it would just amount to a, a, a divine person indwelling a complete human person resulting in two people. And my own anecdotal experience from the pews is that Apollinarianism, even though people don't use that name, is a widely held view of the person of Jesus. The divine part is the spirit that we don't see. The human part is the body that we see. So Jesus is a, is a divine spirit walking around in a human body. That's, I think, a, a popular view in the pews. The, you know, the trained theologians will know that they shouldn't say that, but the average Christian, I think, doesn't know that they shouldn't say that. It may be heresy, but you can see why Apollinarianism appeals. As theologian Oliver Crisp points out, and I quote, Normally, possession of a human body and soul is sufficient for a human person to exist, end quote. So if Jesus of Nazareth had a human body and a rational soul, that is an immaterial human soul, which is what Chalcedon stipulates, as well as the presence of the second person of the Trinity, the Logos from all eternity, which is a person, then by any standard count, Jesus must have been two people. And that's the heresy called Nestorianism. Now, people argue that that's not really what Nestorius thought. That's not really the point. Maybe he was a nice guy and didn't think this. Maybe he wasn't a nasty heretic. But this view called Nestorianism uh, is a heresy. And even when writing in full awareness of the need to avoid Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, a respected evangelical theologian named Millard Erickson, uh, who I think is very good, by the way, still ended up being caught in one of them because it's just so hard to avoid them both. He was writing about the question of Christ's impeccability, whether or not Jesus could have sinned. And when he was doing that, he offers the following suggestion of what might have happened had Christ sinned. And I quote, At the very brink of the decision to sin, where the decision had not yet taken place, but the Father knew that it was about to be made, the second person of the Trinity would have left the human nature of Jesus, dissolving the Incarnation. Had the Logos departed, listen, here it comes, had the Logos departed, Jesus would not have died. That would only have been the case if the person had been merely divine, only the Logos, as various forms of Apollinarianism required. Rather, Jesus would have survived, but would have slumped to mere humanity, and sinful mere humanity at that. End quote. Now here's what happened there, I think. In swerving to avoid Apollinarianism, Millard Erickson ended up in the opposite heresy. Jesus didn't have just a body with the divine logos attached, as Apollinarianism says. No, he had a fully functioning human being, body and soul, capable of living a human life without the logos. So that if the logos departed, as you just heard, the man Jesus would have just kept on living as a mere human. Now, it's true, most evangelicals would not accept the possibility of a separation like that, but why not? You see, a dualistic anthropology says that a person is a human soul that lives in a body, or else they are a combination of body and soul. You'll hear both if you go through the literature. But either way, surely all the ingredients of two persons are present in the Chalcedonian formula. A body, a human soul, that is a rational soul, and the logos. And it's only a matter of squeamishness about heresy that stops Orthodox Christians from contemplating the possibility of Christ's separation into two persons as described by Erickson. 
it just draws out the implications of what a lot of Christians, maybe a lot of you, already believe. You see, it's hard not to agree with Craig and Moreland in rejecting a concretist view of the Incarnation, which, given dualism, is a human body, a human soul, and the Logos, for this very reason. They say, and I quote, If the concept of personhood is bound up with that of a complete human nature, then it seems very difficult, given the rejection of Apollinarianism, to affirm two natures in Christ while avoiding Nestorianism. It is difficult. In fact, I think Erickson wasn't able to avoid Nestorianism. Now, Bill Craig and J.P. Moreland, in their book, Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview, call us to reconsider Apollinarianism. Actually, I'm told that this is, while it's Craig's view, it's not necessarily Moreland's view. I don't know. But I know that this is Craig's view. And he suggests that it may have been regarded as heresy because it was really just misunderstood. He says, and I quote, Apollinarius may have been misunderstood when his critics charged him with giving Christ a truncated human nature, that is, not a full human nature. When Apollinarius argued that the Logos was not the only was not only the image of God, but also the archetypal man, and in this latter sense already possessed human nature in his pre existent form, his opponents, like Gregory of Nazianzus, understood him to mean that the flesh of Christ was pre existent pre-existent. Apollinarius may have been more subtle than this. What he may have meant is that the Logos contained perfect human personhood archetypally in his own nature. The result was that in assuming a hominid body, the Logos brought to Christ's animal nature just those properties that would serve to make it a complete human nature. God himself is personal, and inasmuch as we are persons, we resemble him. Thus, here it comes, God already possesses the properties sufficient for human personhood even prior to the Incarnation, lacking only corporeality. The Logos already possessed in his pre-incarnate state all the properties necessary for a human self. In assuming a hominid body, he brought to it all that was necessary for a complete human nature. So here's my summary of that. Craig, and maybe Moreland, but definitely Craig, tell us that the Logos already had the personhood that all human beings have. Already had all the necessary proper, all the sufficient properties of a human self. So when the Logos combined with a human body, Jesus had a complete human nature, a human body and a human soul or mind, which was also the Logos, because the Logos already had all the properties of a human soul or mind. Now, I'm not going to launch into a detailed critique of this fairly unorthodox view, but just let me briefly sketch what I think are some curious implications of this model. Firstly, in this Apollinarian model, God did not become man in the incarnation of Jesus, because he was already man in the most important sense. The Logos already possessed, remember, and I quote again, the properties sufficient for human personhood, says Craig. Now, he also said that, that in the Incarnation, the Logos took a complete human nature, but he has to maintain that there has always been a human mind. Indeed, on the death of Christ, a dualistic model typically says that Jesus, or his mind, survived. And to say that his human nature separated from his divine nature is not allowed by orthodoxy. So you've got to say that after the, after the death of Christ, Bill Craig would have to say, a being with a human nature survived, namely the Logos, precisely the same Logos that had existed from all eternity. 
So if he doesn't want to say that the human and divine natures were separate, Bill Craig has to say that the Logos was always human and hence did not really become human in the incarnation. Now this this is completely unorthodox. Orthodox Christian theology has always maintained that in the incarnation, God in the Son became man, something that he would not have been but for the incarnation. It's a belief reflected in the Nicene Creed, and I quote, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Or in modern versions, and was fully human. It's there in the fathers who expressed the hope of divinization, that is, partaking in the divine nature. Clement of Alexandria expressed this hope, saying that, quote, The word of God became man, that thou mayest learn from man how man may become God. Athanasius the Great reiterated the claim that, and I quote, He was made man, that we might be made God. The conviction that in the incarnation God became man, God became human, is reflected in the title of St. Anselm's masterwork, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. Whatever the sufficient conditions for being human are, the orthodox view is that the Logos would not have met them but for the Incarnation. Secondly, second curious implication. If the second person of the Trinity was the archetypal man, even without the Incarnation, then a curious implication seems to be that humanity exists necessarily. Now, that that might not be a showstopper, but it's an implication and perhaps a somewhat quirky one that needs to be noted. Classical Christian theism maintains that God's nature and God's existence are necessary. What that means is it's impossible that God should not have existed and it's impossible that God should have been different from the way that God actually is in his nature. And hence the Logos could not have been any different. Now I know that some theologians maintain that God has some accidental attributes, that is, attributes that are not necessary But whether or not the Logos is the archetypal man, I would imagine, cannot be an accidental attribute. This is what the Logos is essentially like. If humanity is contained within the Logos, then what seems to to follow is that it's impossible that humanity not exist. Now, you might not be bothered by that at all. Fine. But in technical terms, it's kind of weird. (laughs) Not really a technical term, but it it is weird. Lastly, And this is where I think things get a bit more serious. Even this more sympathetic revision of Apollinarius is still subject to what was always the most important objection. That which is not assumed is not redeemed. If the Logos did not take to itself a a complete human nature from the world, then he did not redeem all parts of human nature. Gregory of Nazianzus' criticism that Apollinarianism undermines human salvation uh, hasn't been refuted, hasn't been responded to by Bill Craig's revised version of Apollinarianism. Let me quote from, from Greg. He says, and I quote, If anyone has put his trust in him, that is, Christ, as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves 
maybe half also, but if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Further, let us see what is their account of the assumption of manhood, or the assumption of flesh, as they call it. If it was that he might destroy the condemnation by sanctifying like by like, then as he needed flesh for the sake of the flesh which had incurred condemnation, and soul for the sake of our soul, so too he needed mind for the sake of mind, which not only fell in Adam, but which was the first to be affected, as the doctors say, of illnesses. For that which received the command was that which failed to keep the command, and that which failed to keep it was that which also dared to transgress, and that which transgressed was that which stood most in need of salvation. And that which needed salvation was that which he took upon himself. Therefore mind was taken upon him. Now if you let that sink in within a dualistic framework, that's a serious objection. If Christ brought the larger part of human nature into the world with him, perfect, untouched by sin, and not in need of redemption, taking only a partial human nature from this world, namely a human body, then only that which Jesus assumed from this world, namely the human body, was redeemed. The human mind was never assumed, for the Logos, on this Apollinarian view, always had the mind. He, he always had the only mind or soul that he would ever have. In a strange twist, this model results in a redeemed body but an unredeemed mind. No saviour came and took a human soul to himself and redeemed it, on, on Bill Craig's view, actually. So the human soul is not redeemed. Now, whether Bill is right about Apollinarianism being misunderstood or not, his version still falls to the most important objection that the original version fell to. Now, the point in all of this, really, isn't to show that none of the problems of incarnation could ever be solved within a dualistic framework, but just that there really are problems, and that they're not small, they're not easy problems. This is hard stuff. Consequently, the fact that a materialist who wants to be faithful to orthodox Christology faces some difficulty, that shouldn't be surprising, and it shouldn't be a reason to say, well, I'm not going to consider materialism. Just look at the difficulties it creates. Well, no, no kidding. Look at the difficulties Christology creates for everyone. So, with that said, Let's look at what the materialist might do. So here we go. Possibilities for a materialist Christology. What's a poor materialist to do? You see, in a superficial way, any materialist Christology is doomed to be unorthodox. And that's because the Chalcedonian definition, that is you know, the creed which describes what we have to believe about Jesus when the Logos entered this world, the Chalcedonian definition stipulates that Jesus Christ is, and I quote, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, end quote. Now they would have meant that in dualist terms. A reasonable soul was the immaterial, probably immortal soul that a lot of dualists today uh, believe. So we're kind of doomed from the get-go, but Jesus had a human body and a soul and the Logos, according to this view. But 
hear me out. The only reason that the Chalcedonian definition required that Christ have a human body and soul is because they wanted to say that Jesus was really fully human. And human beings, so the framers of the Chalcedonian definition believed, wrongly I say, human beings have a body and soul. So if they want to say that Jesus is really human, then they think we've got to say that he had a body and soul. That's how their thought process would have gone. Their goal, in other words, was not to have a model of Christ that was dualistic. Right? It's not that there was something special about there being two parts to the human nature. But their goal was to have a model of Christ that was really human. And the fact that it was dualistic was incidental. It's just that, that that's what they thought humans were like. And I think that they were wrong. Now, you might worry that if we take away the human soul, then we end up with Apollinarianism all over again. A human body and the Logos without a human soul. But that's not really Apollinarianism from a materialist point of view. You see, that's only Apollinarianism if a human body isn't a complete human because humans need souls. So that just misunderstands materialism. See, Apollinarianism's problem, according to many people, was that it, it took a complete human nature, a body and soul, and then stripped away the soul. But materialists don't have that issue, because we don't think that human nature includes a soul in the first place. So it's a full human nature. Materialism is not just Cartesian dualism with the soul removed, so that what's left is a passive body, half a human nature. For the Christian materialist, a complete human being doesn't require an immaterial soul in the first place. Whatever materialist model you settle on, whether it's property dualism, uh, emergentism, or non-reductive physicalism, or something else, all of the mental aspects of a human being are obtained without reference to a soul. So the incarnation doesn't require a reasonable soul in order for Christ to be fully human. Any more than I think a soul is required for me to be fully human. I deny that too. So we can affirm the point of Chalcedon, without accepting the dualistic framework within which that point was expressed. But what about the relationship between the Logos and Christ's human nature? Suppose we adopt a concretist view of the Incarnation, and we say that the Logos acquired or assumed a human nature. So if that's true, then Alvin Plantinga's objection cannot arise, because now even if human beings are material things, then the Incarnation can occur without the Logos becoming a material thing. It just takes a material thing to itself. So far, so good. But the possible concern here is that this is becoming Nestorianism, where you've got two people, because you know materialists think that a, that a human is just material, so the body is a full person, and now you've got the Logos. Isn't that two people? Now that's a reasonable concern, but I don't think it's one that uniquely targets either materialism or dualism. Just as the human body and soul, given dualism, when added to the Logos, kind of looks like two people, so too a human body configured the right way, given materialism, when added to the Logos, seems like two people initially. Either way, we appear to be saying that we've got all the ingredients of a human being, plus the second person of the Trinity. So how do we avoid the existence of two people? given a concrete view of the Incarnation. Now I'm going to do some borrowing here. I'm going to co-opt an argument from someone who does not identify as a materialist, Catholic philosopher Brian Leftow. Now Leftow argues that 
the combination of a body and soul, supposing he kindly adds that humans have souls, he doesn't require that in his argument. So he argues that the combination of a body and soul may be what humans are made of, but that doesn't mean that the presence of a body and soul is necessarily the presence of a human being. Leftow proposes that if we think of a human being as constituted by a particular body and soul, we can still go on to think of circumstances under which a human body and soul exist in combination, but still fail to constitute a human person. One such possible example, he suggests, is the incarnation of the Logos, and he explains this model as follows, and I quote, The Son assumes Christ's body, henceforth B, and soul, henceforth S, before S and B on their own can constitute a human being or person. For if he does not, then either concretism is an historian, or the son's assumption destroys the person to whom S and B previously belonged, turning the incarnation into a bizarre form of human sacrifice. Just when S and B would on their own constitute and compose a person or a human being is a knotty issue. One can assume that the son gets to S and B before S and B are or constitute persons by holding that Christ assumes S and B as a zygote at the moment of conception, end quote. Okay, so here's my retelling of that story. The incarnation did not include two people because the Logos prevented the body and the soul from working as they normally would to constitute a person, making it so that they constitute a person in combination with the Logos. Had the Logos not intervened, then there would simply have been a human person. But by throwing itself into the mix, as it were, the presence of the Logos caused something else to be there, containing all the elements of a human nature, i.e. a body and soul, but being a different type of person, having a divine nature as well. Now, I think it's quite clear that if this model is possible or plausible, then we can use it to defend a Christology in which the human nature is wholly material. You see, maybe it's true that a given human body can constitute a human being all by itself, provided it comes to function in a given way, pretty much the way that I'm functioning right now and have all my life. But this doesn't mean that the presence of a human body is a sufficient condition for the presence of a human being. Now, just as on Leftow's model, the Logos may have gotten to the human body and soul of Jesus, let's say at the moment of conception, which is when I think human life begins, to prevent them from functioning as a complete human being all by themselves, the materialist can just as easily claim that the Logos may have gotten to the human body of Jesus before it was able to constitute a human being all by itself. So the result is a fully functioning human body whose life, i.e. whose timeline, was the life of the incarnate Son of God rather than whatever life it would otherwise have constituted. It may even turn out, and this is an interesting thing that occurred to me, it may even be that a materialist view of human beings has a marked advantage over substance dualism here. Because it's easy to think that a human body might fail to be a human being or a person because it fails to function as one. But it's quite difficult to think of a simple immaterial human soul that is not a person. What else would it be? What else can a Cartesian soul be but 
a person. It's the very nature of such souls, if they exist, to be conscious things. Now, if Lefdow's proposal is not tenable, then it's not really materialism that's undercut, but it's concrete Christology in general, whether it's dualist or materialist. But look, I have to—I think his, his suggestion seems okay to me. So I'm going to use it. So as far as I can see, there's no real problem with the incarnation taking place if human beings are material creatures without an immaterial soul. That's fine. There, there just isn't a serious objection there. For me... The more difficult thing to grapple with was always what comes next, although I think I've made some progress. And that issue is the death of Christ. So let's talk about that briefly. A philosopher like Alvin Plantinga may be more concerned with questions about how the material interacts with the immaterial, whether one can become the other, and so on. But a a question of greater theological importance, or at least I think so, is what our view of the person of Jesus of Nazareth requires us to make of the cross and our doctrine of God. If we believe that the man Jesus of Nazareth fully died, that is, he didn't survive death as a disembodied soul along with the Logos, if that's what we believe, then doesn't that undercut the doctrine that God is a trinity? You see, materialists tend to believe that we do not survive our own death, apart from Peter van Inwagen or Kevin Corcoran. That seems kind of weird to me what they say. I've discussed it before, but I'm going to ignore it for now. Generally speaking, a materialist would say that we don't survive our death. We probably don't want to say that the divine Logos lived on without a human nature, at least not if we want to avoid heresy, because you can't split apart the divine and human nature in Orthodox Christianity. But if the divine and human nature, that is, if the divine and human parts of Jesus really died, then surely the number of persons in the Trinity is now reduced from three to two when Jesus died. The Son, sorry, the Father and the Spirit, right? It's not really a Trinity, it's a, what do you call it, a, a binity. Now, this is the claim that some evangelicals make in opposition to my view of the death of Christ. Should the Christian materialist be dissuaded by this argument? I actually don't think so. I have struggled with this one, but I don't think so. And two lines of response suggest themselves. So I'll go through those now. Number one has to do with the death in time of the timeless Logos. Firstly, let's suppose, as I do, that the classical doctrine of divine timelessness is true. God is timeless. Now, there's an oddity in thinking of God as timeless, but thinking of Jesus of Nazareth as the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity in time. Here's that oddity. From the beginning of the Incarnation, so when Jesus was conceived within Mary, From the beginning of the Incarnation, there was a sense in which there were two second persons of the Trinity, one eternal and timeless, and one embodied and walking around in Israel. But I don't really think that's a problem, because when we think more about about divine timelessness, that shouldn't bother us. Because if, apart from the Incarnation, God the Son doesn't exist in time, then 
there were never two sons of God existing at the same time, right? The only way in which the Logos has ever existed in time is through the historical person of Jesus Christ, as Paul Helm explains, and I quote, The Incarnation is a unique case of God's acting in time. One thing to note is that if God the Son is timelessly eternal and yet incarnate in Jesus Christ, there is no time in his existence when he was not incarnate. Though since he became incarnate at a particular time in our history, there were times in that history before the incarnation and times since. The incarnation is the projection of the eternal God. There is therefore no sense in talking of the eternal Son of God apart from the Incarnation, except to make the point that the Incarnation was logically contingent. That is, there is no point to it if by this we mean that there was a time when the eternal Son of God existed unincarnated. It is, of course, possible to think of the eternal Son of God as unincarnated by an abstraction of thought, but that's a different matter. The point is, as Herbert McCabe says, there is no pre-existent Christ with a life history independent of and prior to the Incarnation. There was no time when the eternal God was not Jesus of Nazareth. There is no other life story, story in time of God than the story of the Incarnation, end quote. Right, follow that if you can. Had the Incarnation never occurred, it would have been true at any point in time that is in our history to say the second person of the Trinity exists, namely timelessly, but it wouldn't have been true that the second person of the Trinity has existed in every moment in time. The Son of God would have existed timelessly, and at any time during the life of Jesus of Nazareth, it was still true that the Son of God exists timelessly, because if that claim has ever been true, then it must always be true, because it refers to a timeless reality that cannot change over time. So, even if the person, Jesus of Nazareth, was killed completely without any surviving remnant, for example, the Logos or, or a soul that lives on when the body dies, it would have continued to be true that the Son of God existed timelessly. You follow? Now, if that's true, then the Trinitarian Godhead of the Athanasian Creed, the Father Eternal, the Son Eternal, and the Holy Spirit Eternal, cannot be affected, cannot be affected, make sure you know that I'm saying the right word, cannot be affected by the death of Christ in time, because nothing that happens in time can affect any aspect of God's timeless existence. Okay? Now, of course, not all Christian theologians and philosophers accept the doctrine of divine timelessness. Some of them say that God would be timeless were it not for the creation of the universe, but that he is in time as of the first moment of creation, and some simply maintain that God is in time full stop, with or without the universe. I think they're all wrong, for, for what it's worth. And I'm in the majority. Yay, me. Still, the view that God is timeless has a very respectable pedigree, being taught and assumed in the work of many of our orthodox forebears. So it's worthy of note that a view that some might be tempted to think of as on the fringes of orthodoxy, or perhaps even heretical, namely a view of the Incarnation, uh, including a materialist view of human beings, this view can actually claim support from such a historically respectable 
view of God. I find that delightfully ironic. So let's look at the second kind of response that a materialist Christian might make here. Uh, The biblical witness, still talking about the death of Christ, not only can we avoid the more serious alleged theological problems by appealing to an orthodox view of God, namely that God is timeless, but actually, Scripture speaks about the death of Christ in just the way that some people, namely dualists, want to avoid, namely as complete death and destruction with no innuendo of survival. For somebody with evangelical commitments like mine, Our main source for Christology, as for theology in general, is Scripture. And it's not realistic to expect to find a well-developed Christology in the New Testament, but that shouldn't detract from what we do find there. Now, I'll be brief. I'll be merciful and brief. But here are the kinds of biblical material that are relevant here. First, we're faced with the fact that the biblical writers described Jesus' death just as one would, if they wished to convey total demise without a surviving remnant, writing on a theme related to the death of Christ, namely the punishment for sin, Edward Fudge offers a helpful summary here, and I quote from him. He says, The Bible exhausts the vocabulary of dying and speaking of what happened to Jesus. He died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3. He laid down his life, suke, which means the same thing as soul, John 10.15. He was destroyed, Matthew 27.20, or killed, Acts 3.15. Jesus compared his own death to the dissolution of a kernel of wheat in the same passage that mentions losing one's life, rather than loving it in order to find life eternal, John 12.23-26. Jesus poured out his life, suke, unto death, and was thus numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53.12. Every scriptural implication is that if Jesus had not been raised, he, like those fallen asleep in him, would simply have perished. 1 Corinthians 15.18 So that's the first thing we have to observe. Secondly, the theological role of Christ as sin-bearer reinforces the view of his death as personal destruction and complete destruction. Eminent New Testament scholar James Dunn illuminates Paul's discussion of Jesus as the representative of humanity in 2 Corinthians 5. In representing us in death, Christ bore and destroyed sin. I'll quote, There is no other end possible for men. All mankind, die, all mankind dies as he died, as flesh, as the end of sinful flesh, as the destruction of sin, end quote. Unless we think of the human soul as being somehow untainted by sin, but the flesh being evil, which I don't think is a serious option for, for any Christian, this destruction must include the whole human Christ, leaving us either with the separation of the human and divine nature, which we want to avoid if we have orthodox commitments, or else complete death of the person of Jesus in the same way that sin was destroyed through Jesus' death. Driving the point home, Dunn quotes Bath, but, I think we should say, commenting on Christ's death by saying, man could not be helped other than through his annihilation. You see, the idea is that Jesus bore sin upon himself, and then as he was destroyed, the sin was destroyed as well. 
Thirdly, it was important to the apostles that Jesus' body was raised. You might say, well, so what? Think about this. In one of the most unhelpful translations still used, namely the King James Bible, St. Peter applies the saying of the psalmist to Jesus after his death as fulfilled in his resurrection by saying, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Acts 2.27 With language like that, we think of, of disembodied ghosts in the nether regions. That's why it's an unhelpful translation. The common Hebrew idiom of my soul, or my nephesh, remember that St. Peter was quoting from the Psalms, simply means me. And Hades, translated hell in the older translations, commonly refers to the state of all the dead, or the grave. That's why the translators of the New International Reader's Version correctly give us, and I quote, you will not leave me in the grave, you will not let your faithful one rot away, end quote. Now these two statements are a parallelism, expressing the same idea in two different ways. And St. Paul makes the same claim in Acts 13, that King David died and decayed, but Jesus did not. But why, I want to ask, was it so important that Jesus' body remained if his human nature could so easily have survived, even without his body? If, as our orthodox dualists think, the divine and human nature could exist without a body, why was it so important for the tomb to be empty? Why not just make a new body out of whole cloth, right? But this is the type of concern that you have if you're convinced that Christ's humanity was physical, so that the loss of, of his physical integrity would have amounted to the loss of Jesus of Nazareth himself. Right? These are I mean I know this doesn't prove doesn't prove that there's a materialist view at work here, but it's the kind of concern that a materialist would would need to have, whereas a dualist wouldn't necessarily have this concern when it came to the body of Jesus. The bottom line is, unless you simply assume that words like soul, increasingly rare in modern translations, or spirit, necessitate dualistic conclusions, the New Testament portrait of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually offer no support for a dualistic portrait of the Saviour. You might call that an argument from silence, and it is. But it's significant silence. If I mean, if this is our main source for Christology, and as far as the, the writers of Scripture are concerned, we don't need to know anything about a dualistic view of human nature. Uh, and in fact, there are some concerns expressed there that really seem a bit out of place within a dualistic view then I think that's significant. Okay, so I am going to sum up now with some closing thoughts. If if I haven't made you stop listening in outrage, then you've made it pretty much to the end. Um, evangelicals are becoming increasingly willing to consider materialism as a live option, and I'm one of them. We think that it's actually a biblical option after all. More of them now, as I did, and will continue to, are going to turn to think about how the things that Christians have always affirmed can be formulated, can be still affirmed and expressed without the dualism that many of our forebears have held. That's a historical reality. You might not like the fact that that's happening, but it's happening. 
Now, what I hope to have done here is to show that in the case of one of our most important affirmations, that God in Christ became one of us. There's really no cause for despair, but much to be encouraged by, and easily as much room to accommodate the essentials of our faith. As much room as dualism has, possibly even a bit more. And if I've achieved that, then, hey, that's all I set out to do. And that is that is it. That's the talk that I gave on that day in Houston. And now you've heard it as well. I have to say, it's nice to be back. I haven't recorded one of these for a while. I know you can't see me and I can't see you, but it's like I can. Uh, it is nice to be back. Um, I make no promises, as always, about when episode 54... 54, wow, will, will be available. But here's 53. I hope you've enjoyed it. And until next time, this is your host, Glenn Peoples, signing off yet another episode of... Shout out to my new friend!